0: UFO Thinker
1: Podcast Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker Podcast. My name is Frank and let's get cracking. It's going to be a little bit more festive than usual today. We've got a bit of a slightly different concept, a bit of a different theme for the show than usual. And I thought with it being uh, the festive season, the season to be jolly and whatnot, I'd uh, start off today's episode by just proposing a toast to all the listeners of the show. I uh, have a little tradition in my household of getting a bottle of whiskey at Christmas. I do like a nice Scotch whiskey, and uh, i've been enjoying scotch whiskey for quite some years not in terms of like knocking back half a bottle every night or anything like that i just have a very very small amount now and again it's about the taste and the experience and i have a nose in glass and I like to do the the whole uh, letting it sit in the glass for a little while and all the rest of it bit of a connoisseur if i uh, may say so myself and i've got a bottle uh, which i'm going to be drinking today ben rumach and it's a 10 year old space single malt whiskey I've never actually tried this one before. It's a bit of a new brand for me, so I'm going to pop the bottle and hopefully you'll be able to experience that with me for a moment before we start the show. There you go. That's the sound of uh, the the cork coming out of the bottle. And that's the sound of me pouring my first dram. So there we go. Cheers, everybody. And what we're going to be doing for today's show is a little bit of a ufo twist on a christmas carol which is a novella by charles dickens about a character called ebenezer scrooge uh, an old man who's well known for his miserly ways now the idea is that if anybody who's not aware of the storyline on christmas eve scrooge is visited by a series of ghosts and um the three ghosts the three spirits basically are the ghost of christmas past christmas present and christmas yet to come or christmas future and basically the idea is that scrooge is shown the error error of his ways and he's a reformed character by the end of the whole thing now i thought it'd be interesting to kind of play around with that concept a little bit and imagine scrooge as a bit of a debunker figure if you will somebody who's unconvinced and put put to this gentleman the uh, the best arguments for you know ufos past ufos present and ufos yet to come so let's imagine for a moment mr scrooge sat in scrooge towers contemplating his debunking agenda and The ghost of UFO's past is about to appear to him. So presently you'll hear a ghostly noise mixed with some sleigh bells and when I return I shall be in the presence of the spirit. And I'm not just talking about the scotch whiskey that I'm sipping in case you missed that reference earlier. Okay, so I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show once again Graham Rendell. How are you doing today, sir? Hi, Frank. I'm fine. How are you, mate? very good Uh, so great to have you have you back here and and you know what who better to step into the role of the the ghost of ufos past than the man who has written three excellent books future classics in my opinion on that very subject so over over to you whenever you're ready mate Oh, thanks, Frank. So
2: yes, the, the ghost of Christmas past. So looking at pre, I'm going to go a long way back. So I'm not just doing a, a few years ago. So let's go back as far as November uh, March 1942. Let's start there. So if you, if you look at the cover of my Foo Fighters book, you'll see this amazing artwork by Dan and, and Olaf of this bomber firing at a, an orange disc. Now, th- this event allegedly happened in, in at the end of March 1942 with a Wellington bomber. Flying back from Germany from a, from an air raid uh, over the uh, over the town of Essen and Polish crew on board and all of a sudden the rear gunner reports to the pilot that coming up from behind is an orange luminous disc and the pilot says well it's obviously a night fighter open fire at it if it comes close enough so of course the, the rear gunner did he opens fire with his tail guns at this disc coming up behind the aircraft. And nothing happens. The bullets just go into this disc. The disc comes closer. It then flies around to the side of the airplane, and it's sitting off the wingtip. And as it moves around, of course, the tail gunner is still opening fire at this at this light. And it gets to the point where the nose gun turret, he turns the turret and fires at this light again. So there's two turrets firing at this whatever it was, sitting off the wingtip of the Wellington bomber. And again, nothing's happening. Now, you can imagine the kind of reaction of the crew you know, being really scared of something that they, they simply can't down, they can't shoot down, it can't be destroyed. Um, you know, what is it? Is it some kind of German secret weapon? And then it moves around to a position off the front of the airplane as they're flying through the skies of Germany. Uh, in fact, sorry, it was over Holland by this point where, where this thing happened. And again, now the nose gunner is firing on his own at this this whatever it is and and, and just simply no effect at all. And then suddenly, as as the pilot recalls, it shoots off to a 45 degree angle and disappears into the heavens. And they've never seen anything like it. They never see anything like it again. But the the, the crew of the aircraft behind them in the bomber stream also reports seeing whatever this thing was, but nobody's any the wiser. And of course, when they get back to base and they're interviewed by the intelligence officer who's sitting around a table asking crews, you know, what have you seen on, on your flights? Have you seen any unusual items of, you know, German hardware and um, defenses and searchlights and all the rest of it? And they give him this crazy story of this, this thing that came up behind them and they open fire at it and nothing happened. And then it just disappeared in, in, off into the sky. And of course, the first thing he says, you know, have you been drinking? It's an automatic reaction. So here's a really, really early UFO story, which I think doesn't get the kind of prominence that it should deserve. And yet it's, you know, it fits really well into this ghost of Christmas past. Um, it's a story from a long time ago, even before the start of what everybody considers to be modern UFOlogy with the Kenneth Arnold sighting. Um, but it's something that It probably should have a little bit more prominence than it has at the moment. So that's why it's front and center on the front of the cover of the book. So let's move forward just a few more months that year in 1942. So we're still a long way back in history. And we're now in November of that year. And the Americans are now in the war. They've sent aircraft across to the UK. They're not bombing Germany yet because they didn't start raiding there until 1943. But they are doing other tasks, and one of the things that they're doing is flying US Air, Army Air Force bombers over the Bay of Biscay, which is just off France, off, off, off Spain, and they're looking for U-boats, so German submarines. Um, and these are actually Air Force aircraft, not US Navy aircraft, which are doing this task. And this, this squadron's only been in the UK, only been based in Cornwall for the best part of a few weeks. And their crews are just learning the ropes, if you like. So they're flying over ex- huge expanses of sea, looking for small, you know, tiny kind of like things sticking out the water, like conning, tower, uh, conning towers or periscopes, etc., cetera, um, to try and attack these German U-boats, which are coming out of French ports, going out the Atlantic to try and sink Allied shipping. And it's a similar kind of thing to the, the, the Polish crew's experience. They're flying along, but this is in daylight, and all of a sudden, this thing comes up behind them again it's described as a a kind of huge disc shaped object and rather than open fire at it they they watch as it comes up behind them and they're completely and utterly perplexed as to what this thing is it doesn't it doesn't resemble an airplane it hasn't got any wings for instance it hasn't got any motive any sort of uh, source of propulsion that they can see it doesn't have a tail so you know, they have no idea what it is. Again, they're probably thinking it's comes kind of some kind of German secret weapon. And rather than open fire at it, one of the crew actually has a camera on board. And he's a staff sergeant on the airplane and he takes six photographs of this object. Now that those photographs have never ever appeared. But that, that apparently happened. We can't speak to the, the, the chap in concerned. And there was no record of him after the war because he died, unfortunately, three months afterwards because he was part of a different crew, which was shot down by a German aircraft again over the Bay of Biscay. The the story comes from the the ball gunner, the the turret underneath the the, the aircraft's fuselage. He actually um, he he lived in New York or so after uh, after the war, and he reported this story to Leonard Stringfield, who was um, who was a, a, a really good UFO researcher back in the 1950s, and who had a, um, a newsletter called uh, CRIFO, and then another one called Orbit. So. That's where the story comes from. Um, and Leonard uh, Stringfield never actually gave the full names of these people. He only gave the initials. But tracing the initials, I managed to find out the name of the the person who taken the photographs and subsequently died. So at least part of the story, you know can be verified. But looking for the records of this particular case, They don't appear. Um, There are several squadrons who were based at this airfield in Cornwall doing this task at the time, and records are available for those units, but not for the unit concerned with this particular episode, which is a real shame because I would love to have found any kind of mention of this particular story just to corroborate it. but. It's in this in the in UFO law, so you know we've got again another tale of something strange coming up behind an aircraft, and nobody knows what it is. And this is years before the established start of modern ufology. So that's case number two. I'll move forward a few years to 1948. Uh, this is the 1st of October 1948. So we are now past the Rubicon, if you like. We're past um, Kenneth Arnold's. You know, initial sighting, June 1947. So we are now into modern ufology. And we're in Fargo, which is North Dakota, and we're looking at a pilot who belonged to the 178th Fighter Squadron, which was the North Dakota Air National Guard. And they flew F-51 Mustangs at the time. And himself and three of his colleagues had been out on a night flight. They'd been on a cross-country exercise to fly to a certain point and then back again. And as they were coming back to Fargo and they were in the vicinity of the town and the airfield, the three of them decided to land. But um, the, a pilot called Lieutenant uh, George Gorman decided to stay aloft for a little while because he had some fuel left in his fuel tanks and he thought you'd get some night flying pl- uh, practice in. And he's flying around the vicinity of Fargo, where the airfield was, and he looks down and you can see the streetlights of the town, and you can see um, there's a nearby football field where there was going to be a game on that night, and he sees a Piper Cub aircraft flying below him. But then his attention is drawn to a very, very bright light, and it's also moving around. And um, his curiosity is piqued, and he he, he radios the tower and he says, look, I'm I'm not going to land, I'm going to and investigate whatever this thing is and he follows it and all of a sudden it it shoots off into the distance and he has trouble trying to catch up with it and then it basically performs a series of head-on passes on him so the first pass it's coming at him head on and he ducks out of the way he dives before it can reach him so he dives you know 500 feet below it and it, it passes over the top of him the second time it comes at him He decides to to hold his ground and he keeps the aircraft straight and level. And it, it, whatever this thing is, went flying over the top of his aircraft and shot straight upwards. Now, uh, Gorman put his aircraft into a climb as well to try and chase it, but the Whatever this thing was, it was much more—it uh, was quicker and it was much more manoeuvrable than his Mustang was. And he got into an engine stall at about 14,000 feet, which meant that the engine the, couldn't basically you know, make the, the aircraft go any, any you know, further upwards. It just fell out of the sky. The aircraft. Um, when he managed to recover the aircraft and, and got it flying straight and level again, this thing came back down and had another go at him. It had another. Kind of head-on pass to it uh, at him, which he managed to evade, uh, and then it disappeared. Um, now that would be the end of the story, and it would be one of these kind of strange footnotes in ufology. But for the fact that there were witnesses on the ground which saw it as well, the people in the tower, the control tower at the airfield where he was based, uh, it was a, a joint civil-military airfield. They saw this thing flying around. The Piper Cub pilot also saw it as well. Um, And when he landed, the first thing he did was go straight up to the top of the control tower, to the observation deck, to look out of the windows to see what was going on, to see Gorman flying around, chasing this light. So, you know, it it was one of these stories where it wasn't just the pilot coming forward and saying, look, I've seen something strange um, and nothing else to it. There there, There were other witnesses. Now, the strange thing about this story is that the official explanation was that it was a weather balloon. Uh, you know, Gorman apparently was chasing a weather balloon that did, made head-on passes at him and, and climbed suddenly to fourteen thousand feet and above, and he couldn't chase after it quick enough. Now, to me, that doesn't, story doesn't really hold water. It, it might to you, but it certainly doesn't to me. Um, and also, the other thing was at the time. The local weather station actually was sending up balloons, yes, but they were painted black. They weren't painted. They weren't in the kind of translucent white color that you saw uh, that you, you see you know, of balloons at the time. So. One wonders how you could see a black balloon at night, let alone chase after one. So those three stories hopefully give you an idea of past UFO cases. And I
1: hope everybody has a very Merry Christmas. Well, thank you very much, Graham. And as always, you bring forward some fascinating cases from the history of UFOs. And the listeners can check out those cases and many more in your uh, great books, which I'll leave uh, links to in the description of the show. All that's left to say is I hope you have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Yeah.
2: Thank you, Frank. Best wishes. Bye-bye.
1: Well, safe to say, after that information, Mr Scrooge was shocked to hear of these cases existing long before drones were even a thing, and how well documented they were definitely came as a surprise. But, before he even had a chance to compose himself, another figure appeared before him, this time a merry gentleman of a somewhat Mancunian nature, offering a glimpse of where the current state of UFOgy is, The ghost of UFOs present, if you will, a.k.a. Dave Smethurst. Okay, so here he is, the ghost of UFOs present, a.k.a. Mr Dave Smethurst. How are you doing, mate?
3: I'm in good form, Frank. I'm feeling in ghostly form.
1: Yeah, ghostly. feel the, that...
3: the forces of the spirit world flowing through me now. <laughs>
1: a bit uh, festive with it as well, yes, hopefully.
3: Uh, oh yeah, well, after the festive comes tonight, uh, I think I'll be having a couple of drinks with some friends tonight, so I may feel a bit more
1: in the Christmas spirit <laughs> later <Yeah>. on. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, a few festive ales.
3: Oh, of course, yes, and a couple of whiskies, I think, as well, Frank. I don't oh. drink normally, but uh, I may, will make an exception for
1: Christmas. Oh yes, tis, tis the season to be jolly. That's right, yeah, well... So. so so who better to join us for some insights as to uh, where we're at with the UFO field at this present moment than yourself, Dave. Obviously, a man with a finger on the pulse. And obviously, we talk a lot on and off the podcast about the way things are all progressing with the topic and that kind of thing. So obviously, no one can know everything about the state of the UFO topic or ufogy, if you will. But in your opinion, um, what are some of your thoughts on where we're at right now?
3: Well, Frank, I'm going to talk in the character of the ghost of a Christmas UAP present. (laughs) So uh, if you can imagine yourself sitting in a small garret somewhere as I appear as your ghost of UAP present. I believe another ghost of Christmas present took a rather miserly mean-spirited person around the nooks and corners of Dickensian London to show him the reality of the present he inhabited and challenge his beliefs. So dear listener, I, as the ghost of Christmas UAP present, I'm going to take you on a journey around our present UAP situation, so you can see it in all its breadth, and if you need to, change your views about it. So sit comfortably, and we will begin. The story of our UAP present is as much as anything the story of the rise and sometimes fall of many different trends which I've been building over the years. These are competing for your attention, the attention of lawmakers, the media, and in some cases maybe the attention of the others. A very clever and calculated campaign began in 2017 with the aim of getting the secret keepers in the US government to be more transparent about the UAPs that have been encroaching on US airspace for decades and start to do something about it. Faced with a closed door of secrecy from powerful military intelligence and industrial players, the forces of disclosure, led by Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon, fashioned the only key that would open this door, namely congressional legislation. At the very start of this year, we saw the introduction of comprehensive new UAP legislation as part of the 2022 NDAA Gillibrand Amendment. This followed the UAP Task Force report in June 2021, which somewhat reluctantly confirmed the existence of things in our airspace, apparently under intelligent control, and that the US military could not explain. Champagne cocks popped and glasses clinked in ufology, as for the first time a comprehensive piece of legislation was passed enabling a multi-agency governmental effort to track, recover and understand UAPs using a dedicated office. What could go wrong? Well, a couple of things actually. First, a part of the legislation that advocated external scrutiny of progress and mission focus was quietly removed after lobbying by the Pentagon from the final draft of the bill. No biggie, you say? Well, we'll see. Then it transpired that the new UAP office was was to be still housed in the office of the Under-Secretary for Defence, for Intelligence and Security, under a new body called AIOSMG, which had been conveniently set up for the purpose. People muttered that the OUSD already had a bad track record supporting the efforts of the UAP Task Force, was not set up to manage this kind of effort, and the AIOMSG, was just being set up to limit the extent of the inquiry. Their fears were confirmed with endless foot-dragging setting the office up, complaints from many about the lack of cooperation from the Air Force, and no real progress on setting up the kind of investigative programming envisaged. The removal of Gary Reid as part of an IG investigation on efforts to smear Alessandro and cover up the topic further added to the impression of a lack of action. Perhaps that external scrutiny would have been a good idea. But the top hat came for many with the performance of Scott Bray, Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence, and Ronald Moultrie, Undersecretary of Defence for Intelligence and Security, at the surprise UAP hearings in May of this year. Here they effectively tried to walk back the 2021 report's position on the nature of UAPs, implying that if only they had more information then they were sure the explanation for UAPs would turn out to be prosaic. in the process, as well as dodging more pointed questions about UAP performance and characteristics, they displayed remarkable ignorance about key things like the incidents with nuclear weapons at Maelstrom AFP and the Wilson Davis memo. So whilst the two-pace replacement strategy they decided on may have sounded good in their office, it actually backfired at the hearings. This was because it had the effect of galvanising an already irritated set of politicians into much firmer action to force these recalcitrant officials to enact the will of Congress. This has culminated in the additional UAP provisions in the 2023 NDAA. So, the big takeaway here is that this is the year when the gloves came off, and it became clear to most UAP observers there was a pretty visible conflict going on behind the scenes between the forces of disclosure and the forces of non disclosure. After this clash of disclosure titans, The upshot is a strengthened piece of legislation that now allows for whistleblowers to come forward to Congress to identify long-suspected reverse engineering programs linked to crash craft and the production of a detailed account of the classified history of UAP investigation by the government as well as its attempts to cover it up. Whilst the forces of non-disclosure are not defeated, it seems now they are forced to fight a guerrilla campaign with a disparaging article here, a delayed report there, and a general lack of cooperation, etc, etc. This feels very much like they are just prolonging the inevitable. So, away from the central battle, what else can we see as we hover over the UAP scene? The first is a somewhat late but welcome arrival of the venerated NASA, Onto the UAP playing field, replacing its long held aversion to even talking about the potential existence of UAPs with a somewhat modest, if symbolically important, first engaged investigation into the phenomenon. Whilst many did raise an eyebrow at the all singularly small budget for this equally small first step of looking at the best way to look at UAPs, it is nonetheless, to paraphrase Bill Nelson, the head of NASA, something. The smart money here sees NASA in a kind of holding pattern where it looks interested but actually does very little until it sees which way the UAP wind is blowing. But despite this the involvement of the iconic NASA brand with a serious study of UAP has undoubtedly served to lend an enormous amount of credibility to the UAP subject. Alongside an agency like NASA which has much more formal ties with the government and military, we've also seen a number of other groups emerge to investigate the topic. This has served not only to widen the focus of the inquiry, but also bring new voices into the field, which resonate with wider communities of interest amongst academics, scientists, and civilian groups. The most prominent amongst these has arguably been the Galileo project. Led by the erudite and occasionally combative Harvard astronomy professor Avi Loeb, he has both challenged the scientific establishment and set up an eclectic group of scientists, investigators, ex-government officials and even sceptics to oversee a project looking for archaeological evidence of ET in space and capturing images of UAP in real time. Whilst Avi has occasionally blotted his copybook with the community with his shoot-from-the-hip style, most notably in Ukraine, he has certainly created another centre for data gathering that is civilian, not military in nature. Added to this, we have seen the Scientific Coalition for UFO Studies think tank, SCU, really emerging this year as a body that can credibly analyse UAP data and develop a scientific consensus around an evidence-based approach. Its increasing role is important in influencing key opinion formers and establishing forum for those who wish to become involved. In another part of the civilian space, the AIAA, the world's largest aerospace technological society, has started a project led by ex fighter pilot Ryan Graves to urgently study UAPs due to the danger they pose to air safety and the lack of current government action to address the issue. This professional pressure group serves as a great foil to both the SCU and the Galileo project. Together, the three of them have now come to represent a civilian-led centre of gravity that moves the UAP topic away from classified military and government control, which is a significant development. Looking internationally, we have a mixed picture. With by and large the five ice countries of UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand currently not acknowledging the existence of UAPs as a subject, and essentially following the fifth member the US military's lead on disclosure. Many other governments across the world are also generally quiet on UAPs. We are however seeing some acknowledgement from other countries. Brazil has held recent civilian UFO hearings and were closely which were closely followed by their own military. Interest was also heightened in that country and internationally by the recent James Fox documentary about the alleged craft and retrieval of alien bodies at Bahia by the US military. There's also been an increased interest in UAP activity in France this year. This is, this is from both ex government officials and the French GPAN Office openly studies UAPs for its government. Elsewhere, the Japanese Defence Minister issued a protocol for dealing with UFOs in a significant change to their previous position. And the Chinese government has recently announced a major UAP tracking program using AI. Now, there have also been some encouraging green shoots in the tiny Principality of San Marino, where influential UFO researcher and diplomat Paolo Zadi has been steadily working on Project Titan, whose goal is to establish an international UAP conference under the aegis of the UN to allow member states to explore the global UAP situation. This proposal is currently under consideration at the San Marino legislature. The significance of this is that it could loosen the stranglehold the US government has on the subject in terms of the international UAP discussion and encourage greater international transparency and action. International tensions though have made things more difficult recently, and so it's hard to say what will develop on the wider world stage in regard to UAP. One other major aspect of the present situation is how many more different perspectives have become firmly rooted in the discussion. This has been a growing trend in recent times, but this year has seen many of them really flower. The first been has been the fact that many people do not just automatically see the extraterrestrial hypothesis as their go-to explanation of the phenomenon. We now have people seriously considering ideas like beings coming from other dimensions, ultra-terrestrials who have always lived on Earth, and of course the theory that we're seeing our future selves travelling back in time, for the first time this year we can say that the community is genuinely split on the origin of the phenomenon, or at least it does not have a favourite. However, in the interest of fairness, you could argue that the extraterrestrial hypothesis did make a bit of a comeback near the end of this year, as some big beasts of eubology nailed their colours to that mast. This rise in speculation about the origin of the phenomenon has also been fuelled by increased speculation about its complexity in nature. For example, we have retired CIA officer Jim Semivan declaring the phenomenon is a trickster whose nature and motives are unclear, has been living with us on this planet forever and is capable of controlling us against our will. Increasing revelations this year about Skinwater Ranch have seemed to support this idea and others about the phenomenon. Somewhat strangely, a bevy of ex military NASA and intelligence community officers have been consistently seen swooning at the feet of Chris Bledsoe and his prophetic vision of the lady. This is amidst a number of reported UAP sightings at his property. There has also been much more of a crossover this year between the paranormal and ufology, as people more and more contemplate the multifaceted nature of the phenomenon, making links to a range of things but have previously not been studied together. All this is underpinned by a greater focus on consciousness, not only as a medium through which we experience the others, but perhaps a determinant of reality itself. More practically, it has also been seen as a key component of the others' technology. These consciousness connections have also been buoyed by new discoveries about the ability of some people to be more connected to the phenomenon because of the makeup of their brain structure. There has also been a revival of interest in summoning craft via a conscious connection and a growing focus on the importance of remote viewing as a means to surveil the others. But probably the most importantly, in the midst of this febrile atmosphere, we are now seeing the community of experiences step out of the shadows to insist on a place at the UAP community table. That both recognises their experiences as real and the validity of their voice. Perhaps now, with this broadening of understanding about the nature of the phenomenon, people are ready to listen to people's experiences properly for the first time and get past how very, very strange many of them sound. If the measure of the reality of something is the number of ordinary people who can testify they have experienced it, then the question is no longer. Did people see something, but what did they see? A culmination of this broadening perspective has perhaps been best expressed recently by the two intimate conference events in New York, organised by J. Christopher King and James Doley. These gave a shared platform to many important figures across the topic with the intention of starting to knit together a more complex consensus about what's important. That's not to say that a not so easy alliance's though. Of those who have long striven to bring the challenging reality of UAP to the mainstream worry about the impact of these additional elements on political support for transparency. Perhaps a crude but accurate barometer of the present situation has been the much more volatile state of U4 Twitter. This perhaps reflects how near a real breakthrough is With the rise of disinformation, personal attacks, people spectacularly self-imploding and people leaving to influence away from the limelight, sceptics seem more unsure of themselves and people who want to see change are more impatient. Of course, the current lack of the Promise UA report is symbolic to many of the bad faith people fear from the government. But strangely, the new legislation being passed has also seemed to calm things down. As people start to think it will herald a real step change. So, we are currently in a time when a lot of long term trends have come together to both push for change and broaden the basis on which ufology and the movement for transparency is choosing to progress. It feels a little like being on a roller coaster carriage which is just about to reach the apex of its climb before rushing headlong down the track at breakneck speed onto the next stage of the ride. The ghost of Christmas present told the old miser the two greatest problems that mankind faced were want and ignorance. I would suggest our present problems in ufology are much more prosaic, and that we want to know what will happen next, but are ignorant of what is actually happening behind the scenes to determine it.
1: Well, there we go. Thank you very much to the ghost of Christmas present. I tell you what, Dave, while you were reading that out there, mate, it's like I was sat in front of a log fire with the logs crackling away, eating a mince pie, maybe enjoying a bit of a festive tipple as well. I was right in the zone. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much, mate. Very much appreciated. And um, all that's left to do, really, is uh, wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, mate.
3: And the same to you, Frank. That's that's. I hope it's a great 2023
1: indeed so there you go quite a nice thorough summary there from the ghost of christmas present big thanks to dave for that it gives a good roundup of where we are and all the various different angles of interest within the ufo topic and you know it will be interesting to see for the future how all of those various different angles progress over time and maybe other angles which come into play as well as time goes along So I think it's fair to say at this point that Mr. Scrooge will be pretty well up to date with everything that's going on, how the current landscape in the UFO subject is looking and obviously the the knowledge that multiple US congressmen and women are taking this topic very seriously and real steps are being taken around the world to better understand this mystery. I think Scrooge would need to take a moment perhaps to compose himself even but not before another ghostly apparition appears in front of him ghost of ufo's future okay so here he is the ghost of ufo's future aka mr chris sharp founder of liberation times how are you doing today chris
0: hey man yeah i'm doing really really well thank you in the festive spirit and uh yeah yeah looking forward to some christmas fun with you
1: excellent yeah i can see you've got your christmas tree up there in the background looking very nice that mate it's a it's a good effort that it's all the wife's doing, unfortunately. <laughs>
0: we get the uh, credit. <laughs>
1: Fair fair enough. So who better to join us for some insights as to what may unfold over the coming months and years than yourself, Chris? As I've said before, I've often wondered if you have a crystal ball with how accurate some of your takes and predictions have been. And uh, you've had some really big scoops and stories that you've broken over this last year with Liberation Times and also in the mainstream UK news with uh, publications like the Daily Mail, no less. So, Obviously, joking aside, because nobody can actually predict the future, well, as far as we know, but in, in your uh, informed opinion, what are some key areas that you think everyone should be keeping an eye on um, for the future?
0: Yes, keep an eye on Congress. So once the National Defence Authorization Act has been signed, expect whistleblowers to come forward through the approved um, processes, through Arrow Um, whereby the Secretary of Defence then has to um, within 72 hours um, inform um, the relevant members from Congress that there are whistleblowers working on programmes that have not been properly communicated to the committees they were supposed to. So expect that process to take place and I expect closed hearings on that matter. That's something that we should all... You keep an eye on and i think that it will then become a decision from congress as to what they make public and what they don't make public and that's all based around national security matters so that's going to be a really, really big theme and i expect that there may be another effort from the um, ufo community in terms of advocacy to push congress to disclose as much as they can from that process. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. I think also we should keep an eye on uh, contractors to some extent. I mean, if this is with contractors in terms of UFO programs, that that should be quite interesting. Um, I mean, Lou's mentioned before that, you know, if a contractor had got hold of uh, UFO technology, And they had an unfair competitive advantage then that could really really get them in trouble so i wonder how that may play out if congress does discover that some of this stuff is with contractors um that will be interesting and then also there's the question whether this technology if they have been having some success with it maybe that technology can be deployed that's gonna be really interesting public hearings i am not so sure anymore i know there was a push to have public hearings at one point and i believe there is still an appetite amongst advocates within congress to have those but at the end of the day it's up to the committees as a whole to make those decisions and the chair the the chair people of those committees whether to hold public hearings however i i think i think from uh an outsider perspective, that it would be useful to have those public hearings, even if it's with people that have already kind of gone on the public record, such as Fravor and um, and Deidre and Kevin Day, just to cement the fact that we're not dealing with drones. We're dealing with something completely different. That's a good basis to start it on. And obviously, when you do these public hearings as well, you're not communicating just to you know the ufo community on twitter you're communicating to the wider public and you're you're communicating to those politicos that we need on board to kind of take this issue seriously on behalf of the washington post and wall street journal and influential newspapers such as that we really really need this because otherwise we we continue to get hit pieces from the likes of Barnes and defense reporters who get fed information and rely on these sources to get their stories out. So that that's something that's really, really important. And I think also maybe you could get Lou to to stand as well, or, or, um, or Melon, just to take it a step further in terms of the fact that there may be reverse engineering programs and retrieval programs. So that's something that I'm hoping happens in terms of Public hearings, at least.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I think there's been a lot of discussion recently about whether or not these various whistleblower protections are going to be sufficient to actually give the the people who are wanting to come forward to Congress, you know, enough protection. Like, is there going to be sufficient legal protection there? Um, what do you reckon? How have you got any kind of word on the grapevine in terms of our people feeling confident about? about coming forward under these protections or is it, you know, does it remain to be seen? What do you reckon?
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the, the sentiment behind the scenes in terms of what whistleblowers think is that, yeah, there is really, obviously there's a diverse, diversity of whistleblowers. So there may be some that say, oh, this isn't enough. But I think, you know, I, I think from what I'm hearing, there, there are a lot of people who say, look, th- yeah, yeah, we, we, we really like, this legislation we feel that it does give us a way to come forward so so that's fine because it gets to, it allows them to waiver um their their ndas um and anything kind of like made secret through executive orders the atomic energy um act of 1946 in terms of um secrets kept in terms of Let's say the DOE and stuff like that. So it, it allows its broad language, let's say, that allows them kind of like waive any kind of like secrecy <laughs> agreement they, they may have. So that that's really good. And then you have this mechanism as well, whereby they're reporting str- in terms of Arrow you who know, this has to come through. So once 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 Arrow validates that, look, this is a legit kind of uh, program that hasn't been properly communicated. But then they have to go to um, Secretary of Defense, you know, and that, that means there's more accountability in terms of what they're doing. It's no longer going to um, OUSD INS, which it used to under Moultrie, and that office was it was terrible dealing with the UFO issue, and it had no accountability whatsoever. So I feel that I, I feel that we are really getting somewhere now. Um, and as I said, it's it's just a case now whether you know you know what congress chooses to do the information that's going to be provided to um to it within the next few months and years ahead and whether they choose to make to keep that secret or not
1: yeah definitely and i think that's something that you touched on a little bit earlier as well is how much of all of that information is actually going to get filtered down to the ufo community and obviously you know an extension of that to the to the wider public as well um the the whistleblowers have a secure mechanism to report to to congress don't they but that doesn't mean they can go on tv talking about these things and whatnot so i guess the the big question there is how much of of what you know actually is brought forward by whistleblowers are we actually going to get Access to you know is it likely to come in the form of reports, or do you think it could be you know um you know another congressional hearing that kind of thing it's it's, it's interesting to consider what we're actually uh what we're actually going to be seeing what, what do you reckon <laughs> any any predictions on that side of things
0: yeah yeah so, so I mean first thing and foremost that it's not just the public that's being kept out of the loop it's actually Congress itself in terms of the key committees that should be communicated to. So that that's that's really really key there, um, because it's not just the public that's been left out the loop, it's actually congressional committees as well so that that's really, really important uh, in terms of what can be brought forward by Congress if it ch- so chooses to is stuff that's not going to impact national security I feel I, I feel I feel that that's going to be the main the main driver in terms of what it does determined to keep secret or not. And um, I think um, UFO advocates need to just um, hold them to their word in terms of, look, we need to act more transparently in terms of this. At the moment, for instance, we've got a terrible communications vacuum in terms of this UAP report that we've all been expecting. No one's telling us anything. We don't know what's happening. And um, and, and also we have a situation as well where By Burchett seems to be the only one who's actually speaking out about this and no one's kind of like backing him up publicly in terms of Congress. Look, I understand and I I know for a fact as well the likes of Rubio have never been more invested in this but it's all happening behind the scenes because it's very, very sensitive. You've got whistleblowers who actually are very, very afraid of coming out because it seems like publicly there's an effort to ridicule UFOs and what's been going on But in private it's totally different it's full of threats and stuff don't talk about this and you know this and that Uh, i won't go into specifics but it's very very funny how it's all kind of like treated um behind the scenes versus how it's treated in in the media but i feel that we do need to kind of like burst that bubble in terms of the ridicule campaign by having some more public relations stuff going on such as speaking out about this in terms of senators such as Rubio, and holding public hearings as well, we need to get rid of that ridicule fa- factor. That, that's a really, really major thing. And I would add as well that the legislation now basically uh, makes it illegal, let's say, um, to actually mislead the American public in terms of this. Um, and, and they're also going to have to go back as well now in terms of this report um, that needs to be filed going back to I think it's like 1945. So they've got to communicate any misin misinformation efforts that have previously taken place. Um, and, and I think that's going to be interesting as well. And that may even um that may even lead to Susan Goff and what she's previously said about Lou, for example. So that that will be really, really interesting to see what happens there because that's something that Congress is keen to get to the bottom to, whether the public has been misled regarding this.
1: Yeah, and the, the Controller General report as well. I know the regular reporting that they have to generate each quarter every year and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But there was there initially a requirement from the uh, Comptroller General, which was with the uh, GAO, I believe it is, um, and does uh, is, is that report um, specifically is the one that goes back to 1945 and deals with all the misinformation attempts and, and all the rest of it? So you think that'll end up being in a similar kind of format as the regular reporting in terms of having a, a classified and an unclassified version? And we probably will get to um, see that as the public. So
0: that is going to be due in... Twenty
1: twenty four, yeah. I think I, th- I seem to remember that one was a bit down the line. Is it something like a year and a half that they've got to put that together or something?
0: I think it's June twenty twenty four. Could be wrong. I think it's June twenty twenty four from from memory. So it has 540, 540 days to submit it. So if we just go, you know, five hundred forty days from today. Um, yeah, it takes us to the 8th of June,
1: 2024.
0: Yeah. So yeah, that, that's when the report needs to be provided by, and that's going back to 1945. So that's now, that, that's Kurt, that's Kurt Patrick, um, director of Arrow, who's going to actually be, um, be, be issuing that report. So I think, yeah, I think yeah, it's that's hard to get that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's right. I think it was um in, initially supposed to be the GAO but now they're just auditing the report. That's right, isn't it? And Arrow's actually in charge of of, of putting together the report itself, if I'm remembering the details correctly there.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that that's correct from my understanding, yeah. So the, the the um controller general is still involved, but in terms of the person putting it together it's gonna be it's gonna be Kirkpatrick in, in his office doing that. So yeah
1: yeah i mean i just that's a a real key bit and i really hope that we do get you know at least some parts of that as the public as ufo enthusiasts and researchers and whatnot because the filtering off kind of what is misinformation from over the years and and you know like that we always talk in the ufo field of of the waters being muddy kind of thing and if that report actually does filter i mean it's a while it's not going to be in the next year that we see that is it then it's going to be June was it June 2024 but it really could go some way to kind of removing a bit of the muddiness from the water and and allowing us to actually understand a bit about how things progressed through the decades and how we've ended up where we are today so that's definitely a really interesting one in terms of the disinformation to keep an eye on and um, speaking of that kind of you know manipulation of like the, the public's perception of this and whatnot do you think there's a bit of a an aspect of that in things like the Julian Barnes article for the New York Times and that kind of thing. Or is that, um, you know, just Julian Barnes just doing his own thing or could there be a bit of an influence there from things that he's hearing from within the Pentagon, et cetera.
0: I'm not, I'm not sure anymore because now I, I know for a fact that both sides are uh, unhappy with Barnes in terms of that. Okay. Uh, because, it's been, made, it's been made very, very clear, let's say. It's been made very, very clear that there's a whole host of potential reasons. that like That's the line from the Pentagon, basically. There's a whole host of potential reasons behind UAP. Um, and that can range from drones to weather conditions or just something that we don't understand. So I think that was made very, very clear to Barnes. However, he chose to really kind of like hone in on that Chinese drone aspect. Uh, whether that was a good idea or not, you tell me. Um, but I think that, well, I know that that did really, really piss some people off in Congress some important people as well. And that's backfired. Um, so I think, I think that's really, really important to, to note. And um, yeah, I, I wasn't very, very happy with, Julian Barnes for that, nor that how the New York Times handled this. You know, we know how we know how much they've watered down um, Ralph blumenthal and Leslie Keen's articles in the past, um, and, we, and we know it's line on anonymous sources. Obviously, you do have to use anonymous sources when it comes to defense issues. However, I feel that if you are going to use anonymous sources, especially in the New York Times case as well being such a, kind of like a, a big newspaper and well-respected newspaper, then you have to at least at least have someone from the other side tell their story as well, which they failed to do. They failed to provide a fair, balanced, and accurate story. And that's really, really important because I feel that the American public was misled in terms of that story, hence why you got the other story from um, my dear friend and co-writer from the Daily Mail, Josh, Josh Boswell, um, which had the ODNI saw, saying, look, <laughs> what what you're hearing from the New York Times is misleading. You know, we've seen orbs and stuff from Reaper drones. You know, we, we've seen stuff that can definitely not be explained and is not down to Chinese drones. So we had that kind of like pushback as well because people were really, really off by the article from Barnes. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it may have just be it may have been him just kind of, um, you know, we know that he's, Friends with um, friends with some debunkers, let's say like like Mick West. So perhaps he got too too carried away with it. Um, but we know that other defense reporters who have kind of like um, poo pooed um, non potential non human intelligence. You know these these guys are defense reporters, so they're going to parrot whatever their sources say that they need to actually get out their stories. And for me. This just, if you compared it to um, Watergate, for example, you know, it's like journalists hearing about Watergate and a scandal involving Nixon and then going straight to Nixon and his staff and then being like, oh, no, there's nothing to see here. And then the the, the journalist saying, oh, yeah, I spoke to Nixon's guys, nothing to see here. Yeah. <laughs> it's, scandal at all. It, it's exactly like that. And it's just amateur hour. I really, really fear for the state of journalism which is why actually like you see so many independent journalists now such as myself um getting more respect because we're the ones who are kind of like able to really push this forward where as a lot of establishment journalists are just really really failing in their due diligence
1: yeah, and long may it continue, mate. I hope you keep up the uh, great work that you've been doing throughout 2023. Um, so just a quick final point then as well, something that I've been really kind of banging on about over the last couple of weeks is um, Christopher Mellon has been talking about the um, the possibility of, of some of the most capable sensor systems that the US has got. I think a question that he was really pushing for to get asked at the hearing that didn't get asked in the end was – um, some kind of confirmation that these objects have been picked up in space or under the water, you know, in terms of a clear acknowledgement. Obviously, they won't be able to go into cases, but a, an acknowledgement that there have been cases detected in space or under the water, because that straight away, it's like the silver bullet in a way, isn't it? That, you know, that's a phrase that gets thrown <laughs> around quite a lot, but it would be a bit of a silver bullet. Like, there's no, there's no way that the uh, that, 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 that an adversarial government or military has got some kind of drone that can zip around in space enter the earth's atmosphere and then leave the atmosphere again and whatnot so what role do you think that kind of you know the the transmedium object aspects of this could take can can you uh, give us any thoughts you might have on that side of things things being acknowledged as being detected in space or or under the sea
0: yeah, yeah, well, Congress is already aware of that. Well, the key committees, such as the Armed Services and um, the Intel committees, from my understanding, are already aware of that as a fact. Um, so it's just communicating that now publicly. So whether mm-hmm. that happens in the report, I, I don't know. But the name change is a big thing from um, aerial to anomalous, which is really, really important because before you had a situation whereby the Air Force saying, well, you know, if it's not in the air, if it's in space, then it's nothing. Nothing to do with us because it's aerial phenomena. <laughs> yeah. So we're not going to investigate if it's in space, despite the fact we do have sensors out in there which can detect them. So they're really playing a semantics game. Same with Space Force, probably as well. They're like, oh, you see, well, if it's going to the atmosphere, we're not, you know, it's nothing to do with us anymore. So it's, yeah, it's really, um, it's really going round in roundabouts there. So I think, yeah, that, that name change is very, really, very really important. And you have already held a good point there. It does, it does need to be acknowledged in terms of transmedian aspects. And look, if you look at the um, intelligence authorisation act explanatory report from the Senate Intelligence Committee, which was released over the summer, then, you know, they state for themselves that there's been an exponential increase in terms of transmedian threats and this is what they mean in terms of UAP. And I've been told that as well. And I think the danger that you have is that you have so many of these things being tracked and stuff that you can't track them all. And if you're tracking so many UAPs, what are the chances that something hostile gets through, whether it's from an adversarial nation or, or whatever, or, or some terrorists, something like that, because he's so much. many of these things being tracked. So, yeah, I, I think that there's a real alarm within, within Congress in terms of this, and that we've seen it for ourselves in terms of um, the uptick of these things, like UAPs being seen by airline pilots lately. I know that a lot of people like to say, oh, it's just um, Elon Musk's satellites, but I... I some of these things, like one of the recent videos I released that Jeremy Corbell obtained, um, that was really interesting because you you basically saw a, a a triangle pattern emerge, and this thing was like seen to be seen by the plane despite it traveling at like six hundred miles per hour for one hour, and you can kind of like see these objects move as well as they're going into this tri- triangle formation. So. I think like stuff like that. You, you really, it's really difficult to explain. Uh, so, and, and if pilots have been seeing more of these, then it just backs up what the Congress has been saying.
1: Absolutely, mate. Well, I think we've we've covered quite a lot of ground there of things that to to watch out for in twenty twenty three and beyond. Um, so, yeah, I suppose all I've to say is uh, I hope you and the family have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you very much Chris.
0: Thank you likewise I just want to give a shout out to you know yourself and all the other heroes in the community and just everyone who supported Liberation Times this year as well you know we're small compared to some organisations and I just want to thank everyone for their support and including my patrons as well for for really re-helping me spend more time on this topic and I'm so, of you guys. I, I'm so appreciative of you guys. I'm so appreciative of you guys, and just thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything you guys have done for me. Thank you.
1: Great stuff. Thanks, thanks very much, Chris. I hope you have a great one. Cheers, mate. You too. okay so there we have it thank you very much to the ghost of ufos yet to come christopher sharp and i always recommend everybody go check out liberation times it's an excellent publication to follow if you're interested in this topic and chris does a great job of reporting about all the nuances of the political processes involved and the political side of the ufo topic and uh, yeah definitely recommend going and checking that out so, what becomes of Mr. Scrooge? Is he a completely changed man? Does he rush out and start to subscribe to every single UFO-related podcast, YouTube channel that he can possibly find? Does he stay in his groove as, as a debunker and continue doing that kind of thing? Well... I'll let you decide what's the most realistic there and I'll let you choose your own ending for this one but the information I think has been laid out very nicely there for Mr Scrooge to make an informed uh, decision either way so there we go I hope everyone enjoyed that UFO related retelling of Christmas Carol a bit daft obviously but it's Christmas so you know why not get a little bit Uh, more humorous than usual and hopefully there was some you know good information in there as well aside from the the comedy and the the festive silliness so i just want to say before we finish up Just a big thanks, really, to all the listeners. I mean, I can't tell you how crazy this year has actually been. Absolutely insane. I mean, ever since starting the podcast about a year and a half, two years ago, it's just been an amazing journey. And this year I've actually managed to go meet up with a lot of the people who I've met through doing the podcast. And, um, you know, just, just kind of blows me away, really, how far things have come from me just sitting, rambling on about UFOs to you know, on my own in a spare bedroom and now there's, you know, people listen to the podcast. It still blows me away that people actually get in touch and they say that they really like listening to the podcast. It's still quite bizarre to me, but I'm just very thankful, you know, to have kind of... um you know, been taken up by this wider community and for all the cool people who I've met and um, big thanks to all the people who've been on the show. Of course this year, if any of you guys are listening I very much appreciate you spending the time with me here and having a discussion uh, and very much appreciated by all the listeners as well. Next week, we're going to actually be doing uh, the last round table of the year Obviously, we do these monthly roundtables where we round up everything that's been going on. So a bit more of a lighthearted holiday season type roundtable with some extra guests going to be joining us for that. So make sure you check that one out. And that one's going to be going out on the Friday the 30th. So almost the last day of the year. And then uh, the week after that, we're going to be starting 2023 with a real bang trust me i've got something special lined up for that one and um, which will be available extra early access on patreon and everywhere else on friday the 9th of january and um, so if you don't already support on patreon and you enjoy the show and what i do here might be something to consider and you do get early access and lots of other benefits as well and you can support on patreon from um even from like a dollar two dollars a month and you get all of the benefits like early access being able to communicate with all the other people on patreon in our little community that we've got growing over there so all that's left to do is to say happy christmas everyone i hope you have a good one whatever you're up to Um, I'm extremely fortunate to have this Christmas with my wife and my two beautiful daughters, who are now one and three years old. So as you can imagine, it's quite a magical time in my household at the moment. Uh, I I love Christmas anyway, but when you have young children, it really is some magical moments right there. And uh, I just try to live in the moment as much as possible these days, because honestly, the time we get on this planet goes by so fast. And you have to enjoy the good times that you get in this crazy journey called life. Uh, The last two years have actually been pretty challenging for various reasons, which many listeners, you know, might, might remember me talking about, um, my wife's mum actually uh, passed away. Our daughter was born with some quite severe complications uh, from my wife. Uh, luckily, you know, she and my wife are both perfectly healthy now, but it was very stressful at the time. And um, and then I had a phase of being really, really ill for a year. Literally every couple of weeks, I'd be bedridden for a week. And, and then I had um, a pretty bad car accident. So yeah, a few bad things going on. Uh, a bit of a bad run of luck, really. But the last few months have uh, have been uh, really good. And throughout all of that crazy stuff, the podcast was like a kind of a common thread to keep me on track. So uh, it was really, really good to have that. And um obviously, having been through all of that, this Christmas kind of feels a bit extra special. Now we've you know got through that to to better times. And. Um, you know, some people might find Christmas a tough time as well. You know, like I've had those tough times. Some people have that at Christmas. So it's always worth remembering to reach out to anyone around you who who you may know who might find it tough at this time of year. And if you have a bit of extra space at your table, you know, might be worth asking them over. And if you're one of those people who struggles at this time of year, I do hope it goes as well as it can do for you. Soon we'll have a new year and there will be better weather and hopefully better days ahead and always try to talk to somebody if you feel desperate at any stage you know it may not may not seem like it but you're never alone and you can always call 116123 in the UK and um, to speak to samaritans there's always somebody there to be able to talk to or i believe the number is 212 673 in the united states or you can google samaritans uh, to get the up-to-date information and once again just a huge thank you to everyone who listens to the show it's been a hell of a ride so far it really has i never thought there would be anybody like the amount of people tuning in from all over the world to listen to the show when i started this i had no idea where it was headed and um you know who knows maybe we even have some listeners out there at the north pole these days eh so if you're listening santa please not them socks again dude i'd much prefer a ticket to the next inquire anomalous event please or um a bottle of whiskey would do nicely as well anyway uh cheers Slantcher happy christmas and here's to ufos and an interesting year in 2023.
0: UFO secret podcast.